Romans chapter 8. And today I'm going to do a little something different. On every Sunday since we began Romans, and this is the 108th installment, I've tried to take Sunday morning out to do what I call Romans. What is it? What is this epistle? What is the essence of it? What's, what does it constitute? And we're going to, the closing part, which we're in now, which I call Operation Delta, is going to create for us an advance. And we have always been that. Telestai has been one small, humble phalanx in the advancing army of God in this particular time. Romans helps to reveal that we are in a transition of two ages, two eons, and the clashing of those ages is ongoing right now. And I've called it an apocalyptic battle, an apocalyptic warfare. And today I want to do a little bit of an excursus, and I've been doing these lately. This is all an introduction. This is kind of like a buck and wing, which is a tap dance. Excursus. It's a stall, stall tactic for some reason. Excursus means an excursion or a digression, but they're very important. And in this, I'm going to sum up a lot of doctrine. I've already done one on bibliolatry versus bibliology. And this one's going to be on apocalyptic today, an excursus on apocalyptic, which will bring us into Romans chapter 8. Also, I have an excursus or a digression, a concentrated doctrine on the Israel of God that will be coming up, and that may transition us into the study of Galatians, which is one of the most important apocalyptic books. So here's the word that allows Romans to hit the ground running, apocalypto. And I don't know if you recall, but when we taught Revelation, I came to the end of Revelation, and we distilled the essence of Revelation. At the heart of Revelation, there is the Lamb of God. The apocalypse of the Lamb is really the apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter, Revelation chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6 introduce this lamb. He's mentioned 28 times in the book of Revelation, and that is four times seven. The Holy Spirit is mentioned as the seven spirits of God four times. Four times 28 reveals that the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God that appears before the throne, his entire job or office or operation or mission is to reveal the lamb. At the heart of Revelation, there is the Lamb of God. Previous to that, we studied the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. It opens up in the beginning of the narrative after that wonderful prologue. In the beginning of the narrative, John the baptizer says, Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. And that opens up a whole vista for us in understanding what apocalypse means, apocalypto. The Y is just dropped down, or the U drops down to a Y, and that's where we get that word, apocalypto. And my question, as we rounded off our study of Revelation, do all of Paul's epistles, all of them taken together, also present to us 
an apocalypse, a stunning revelation of the Lamb of God. And we have answered in the affirmative so far in Romans, we're pressing toward the center in which, in the very heart and center of Romans, even structurally, is Romans eight thirty one and 32. If God is for us, and that's a fulfilled condition that, that expresses a, an incontrovertible fact, and he is. God is, by his very nature, for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God has not spared his son, but freely handed him over, on behalf of us all. That's the Lamb of God, because Romans 8.32, which expresses the Lamb right in the heart and center of Romans, brings us back to Genesis 22, when Abraham's son was spared, because God said through Abraham, and Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. The nuances of meaning there are stunning. God will provide the lamb, but God will also provide himself as the lamb. Jesus Christ being God of very God, as well as the lamb that God provided. Abraham's son was spared. God did not spare his only son, his only begotten son, but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. In that handoff, he took away the sin of the world. He took away the sin of the world. Preaching the gospel is all about evoking faith in people. You preach the gospel with the expectation that the Holy Spirit will gift the hearers with faith. Not with faith so that they can be saved, but with the faith that perceives that we are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so we have this in mind now every time we preach or proclaim or tell the gospel in conversation. We anticipate and hope for the evoking of faith in the listeners. So I want to start the message today in earnest by saying, by giving a little excursus on apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, just what is it? The passage we're about to examine a little more closely, namely Romans chapter 8, is a passage that highlights what's been a, a turn in the past half century to what is termed apocalyptic theology. And I think this is extremely important because the Lord has given us an insight and all of Romans agrees with what John one eighteen says. No man has ever seen God at any time, but God only begotten has explained him, exegeted him, expounded him, interpreted him, and that's Jesus Christ. And in 1 John 5.20, one of the most, a verse that we must never take for granted because it's an all-encompassing verse, we know that the Son of God has come and is present. The word is in the present tense there. We know that the Son of God is present. We know that the Son of God is present. And that he has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And that means real. That we may know him that is real. And that we are in him. 
That is in Jesus Christ. We are in Jesus Christ. And this is the true God and eternal life. We are in the one who is the true God and have eternal life because he is the life. Who's we there? Well, it's a bigger picture than you think. We are in Jesus Christ. I said at the very start of Romans in the first increment, our task is interpretation. Our goal is understanding. And when we come to understand Romans, we really come to understand the true God and that we are in him because we are in Jesus Christ, his only son, and have eternal life. The interpretation of Romans then is really an interpretation of God who is love. God who gave his son, the son who gave himself, and that we are in him who is real, in him who is true. And so in interpreting Romans, we interpret God in his son, Jesus Christ. So the passage we're about to examine a little more closely, we have to approach on our knees, as it were, in our hearts anyways, in Romans 8, is a passage that highlights what has been, thankfully, by God's grace, a turn toward what we call apocalyptic theology in the last 50 years. The term apocalyptic has various interpretations, and it's almost as if that term is attacked itself by the prince of the power of the air. Because, as you know, the word apocalyptic has the connotation mostly to describe end-time catastrophe in people's minds. It conjures end-time catastrophe. And therefore, those who adhere to this thing called apocalyptic theology or who are apocalyptic Christians are perceived as kind of weirdos and outside of society and not caring for society or civilization or for people. It's a term that's almost used uniformly in everyday speech to mean unmitigated disaster or catastrophe of what people call ignorantly biblical proportions, oddly enough. Apocalyptic is also used disparagingly today to refer to people or groups who withdraw from society and huddle in conclaves awaiting the end of the world or the collapse of civilization or the rapture. Apocalyptic, as we're using it, is entirely rooted in the use of the term in the New Testament where apocalypto is deployed as the revelation of God's saving act in Jesus Christ. It's an act which is salvific or saving or salutary. This apocalypse and Paul's epistles are and do constitute altogether an apocalypse is in, in one sense an unveiling of God in Jesus Christ, but it also depicts an invasion of God in two divine missions into what is known as this evil age. 
If you've lived long enough, you know one thing about living in this world that I found out is that this world is not what we would hope it to be. This world is not what we would want it to be. This world by its very nature isn't what we want it to be or what it will be when the kingdom of God finishes its invasion. Two invasions, the first of the Son, the second of the Spirit. Romans 8 brings in the connection of the two, as I'll show you in a moment. So we're using it in a saving term, the apocalypse being truly an unveiling of God in Jesus Christ and in him crucified, but also unveiling itself is an unsufficient descriptor. It doesn't really get to the point, the word unveiling, although strictly it does mean apo to remove a calupto, a veil. It still doesn't catch it, though. In fact, it has to also constitute an invasion of God into the present age. This invasion does have cataclysmic impact. It is worldwide in that sense. It's universe-wide, and it's cataclysm that it, be- that it brings. However, the catastrophe that this apocalypse denotes is not upon civilization or society or humanity, but upon superhuman or suprahuman cosmic tyrannical powers, oppressive powers, that have exercised enslaving authority over mankind and even over all of created reality. So apocalypse does mean total disaster for those tyrannical powers, suprahuman powers. Apocalyptic theology then And this is extremely important because the doctrine of universal salvation left alone is not good. Not good. When God looked upon the first man in Eden, he made this appraisal of him. It's not good for the man to be alone. When I've appraised the doctrine of universal salvation, I found, yes, I can see it. It's an insight. Obvious, it's obvious that in Adam all die and in Christ all would be made alive. But universal salvation as a doctrine is not good if it's left alone. If it's not married to apocalyptic theology. And that's what we're doing at this phase of our ministry. It's what God has led me to do. Is marry universal salvation, which is really a Christological doctrine all things summed up in Christ, with apocalyptic theology. And I'll tell you why, I'll explain why as we go on. Apocalyptic theology constitutes the understanding that we're in a war right now. Apocalyptic theology discloses an eschatological war, and that does mean an end-time war, as as it were, that's being waged not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. 
It is not against flesh and blood, but against tyrannical principalities and enslaving powers. Apocalypticism, as I'm talking about it then, involves the expose for us to perceive, an expose of God's rescuing, liberating, transformative power in Jesus Christ and him crucified. A power that is catastrophic, not to civilization or to society, but to cosmic powers that hold societies and civilizations and humanity itself enslaved. So in my view, apocalyptic theology is friendly with the doctrine of universal salvation. The two don't often meet, I find. The two don't often meet in theologians who hold to the one or the other view. But as again I say, I view them not only as compatible, but necessary to one another. Without a universal salvific horizon, a salvation horizon, apocalyptic, as we call it, would be about an eventually failed invasion into this world. If we didn't see the universal effect of the saving work of Christ, then apocalyptic theology would just be ultimately about a failed mission into this evil age by God in the form of two divine missions or expeditions, I like to call them. But without the apocalyptic view, on the other hand, universalism is incapable of understanding life and combat in the agona, as it's called in the scripture, the agon, A-G-O-N, the arena of contention. Without apocalyptic view, Universalism is incapable of understanding life and combat in the agona, which is exactly what we're about to learn in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians 5, as well as Ephesians 6, to name a few passages in Paul's epistles. So the marriage of apocalyptic theology, which is an apocalyptic view, is a necessary one with universal salvation. In fact, it's not good that either of these be left alone. Their marriage is not only necessary, but extremely and prolifically fruitful. In other words, when they get together, they're fruitful and they multiply insights. That's where we are right now at the beginning of the second 40. Romans 8, 1 to 13, where, again, we are ending up in the center, links the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first divine mission, to the Holy Spirit's power in God-approved livingness. Much more to say about that in the midweeks and Sundays, perhaps. Romans 8, 1 to 13, links the death and resurrection of Jesus to the Holy Spirit's power in, in God-approved livingness, G-A-L, almost like Galatians. And it continues an exposition of the militant grace that's at work in believers 
in the present warfare. A warfare between suprahuman powers that's raging in the present clashing juncture of the ages. As the evil age has been and is being invaded by God in a strategy involving two divine missions that have swept us up in its wake, recruited us into its warfare, and armed us for the conflict. Romans 8, in large part, deals with the life of the saints in the agon. The agon, the arena of great adversity, in which they, make that we, in which we endure through a spirit-produced hope. We groan with spirit-induced and spirit-aided prayer. And we conquer through him who loved us. Through all the adversities that we're destined to be involved with. And even now, through these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. With a love from which we can never be severed. In the course of describing this arena, this agona, a gladiatorial arena, or really a theater of war, the identity of the saints as the children or the sons of God and the heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ is also expounded. And at the height and heart of this chapter, Indeed, at the height and the heart of Romans, the epistle itself is the promeity of God. Promeity, P-R-O-M-E-I-T-Y. The promeity of God simply means that God equals God for us. And there is no other God than God for us. God who is all for his creation. So much so that he's invaded this evil age to bring down the suprahuman tyrants that enslave it. God is for us. In fact, one sense, promeity is the final doctrine of Romans that comes forth. God is personified in God's Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, and him crucified. In our study, reading Romans with the light on, we've handled at least superficially and at most somewhat in depth all the verses in Romans so far, except for a handful that I have yet to translate. And they're all in Romans 8. In this chapter in which Paul's argument reaches a peak, and there are one of many peaks. You want to go mountain climbing? I'll give you some peaks to climb. Read them yourself. It doesn't matter the translation. You get the point, and hopefully you'll get the peak. The peaks include Romans 3, 21 to 31. In this view of Romans as a mountain range, the second peak is Romans 4, 24 to 25. The third, Romans 5, 18 to 21. The fourth, 6, 23. The fifth is Romans 7, 25. 
The sixth that we have just finished on last Wednesday, 9.33, 9.30 to 33. The seventh is 10.18 to 21, another peak. Then there's 11, 30 through 36, 12, 21, 13, 11 to 14, where it talks about knowing the time that it's time to put on the armor of light. Then there's Romans 14, 23. Then there's 15, 30 to 33. And then finally, really the capstone of all of Paul's epistles is Romans 16, 25 to 27. Read them and don't weep, rejoice. Read them and don't weep, rejoice. You get a winning hand. Don't weep. These peaks are peaks of rhetorical force that the apostle of Jesus Christ links up God's action in Christ with God's action in the spirit of Christ to show the love of God in its powerful saving demonstration. That's apocalyptic. So somebody says, I heard you're apocalyptic. Say, yeah, I am. I'm a strong believer in the love of God in powerful saving demonstration for you. Here's Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation. Therefore there is no condemnation. And as I've said before, that means there is justification to those who are in Christ Jesus, the Son of God is present, and he has given us an understanding. The Son of God is present, and he has given us an understanding that we may know him who is real, and that we are in him who is real, that is, in the real God, Jesus Christ, who is eternal life. We are in Jesus Christ, First John 5.20. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation got me curious. It's kata krima. Kata plus krima, which means judgment. So it kind of means a down judgment. It's only used three times, and all of them are in Romans, in the whole Bible. There is the verbal form, kata krino. There's other forms called katakresis, which we find in Second Corinthians 3. I cut out a huge section of that before I came here today that I was going to speak on because I don't want to give a distraction here. Katakrima, three times, is the result of judgment on Adam and his progeny, which is all of humanity. It's a judgment that amounts to death. The opposite of katakrima, unto death, katakrima, unto death, leading to death, and so that it almost equals death. The katakrima almost equals death. The opposite of katakrima, condemnation unto death in Adam, is dikaiosis, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-I-S. I'll give just the transliteration. Dikaiosis, or dikaiosis, justification unto life in Christ Jesus. The opposite, then, of 
condemnation unto death is righteousness unto life or justification unto life. So the opposite of katakrima, condemnation, unto death in Adam is dikaiosis, unto life in Christ. But this also goes to 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Just as in Adam all die because of the condemnation that leads to death, so in Christ Jesus all are made alive because of the justification that leads to life. All will be made alive. That's the sweep of universal salvation. But it has to be married to apocalyptic theology. Apocalyptic theology alone is like Adam wandering around in the garden, yawning, naming another animal and saying, so close and yet so far away from a helpmeet that I'd like to be with me for the rest of my life. I'll call this one baboon. Not too good looking, but could be a good friend. And God makes the woman. You know how it goes. But universal salvation wandering around on its own, it's not good for that to be alone either. And there's a lot of people that get that insight, but they're wandering around and they're saying, yeah, but life is still pretty rough and there's still all this stuff going on and uh, where's, what's that? How explain? How's that explained? Apocalyptic theology joined to that. Together they form a fruitful union. They hook up and have kids. Lots of insights, endless insights. That's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting adversity, but I'm also expecting to conquer more than conquer through Him who loved us. I've seen that in action over and over again. The opposite of catacrima unto death in Adam is dikaiosis unto life in Christ, just as in Adam all die. So in Christ all will be made alive. In that sense, all are in Christ Jesus. What if I told you that sometimes the gospel isn't meant, not sometimes, all the times, the gospel isn't meant to evoke faith in the hearer so that they can get into Christ The gospel is to gift the hearer with faith that they are in Christ Jesus and not any longer in Adam. That's why awake, you sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, says Ephesians 5.14, quoting Isaiah 60. So my whole thing now is if I preach the gospel, if I don't, it doesn't mean people are going to go to hell and it'll be my fault at the end. That's how people actually think, you know. Now, I have the privilege of preaching the gospel and with the expectation that God will awaken the hearers to the reality that Christ's faithfulness has justified them, rectified them, made everything all right. And that this is the ultimate reality that will be manifest everywhere. But right now there's a war going on. The opposite of katakrima is dikaiosis. Katakrima is unto death. Dikaiosis is unto life. For the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life. Who gets affected by the wages of sin and death? All in Adam. Who gets affected by the gift of eternal life? All who were once in Adam. But now in Christ. To them that are in Adam, there's condemnation and therefore death. To them that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is justification and therefore life. Adam's sin, and we've learned this very well from Romans 5. Adam's one sin, one sin. Brought the judgment that resulted in condemnation, which is death. Because the wages of sin is death. So the judgment on sin is death. Death or condemnation. On the other hand, Christ's one righteous act resulted in justification resulting in life. Adam's one sin brought death to everyone. Christ's one righteous act brought life to everyone and justification. So in that sense, all are in Christ and are without condemnation our personal act of believing does not bring this situation about think about that our personal act of believing does not bring this situation about our faith gifted to us by God perceives, understands, grasps, comprehends that this has been brought about by God through Jesus Christ's faithfulness. By the gift of the Spirit, one awakens to the reality of Jesus. 5.14 of Ephesians. And by the gift of faith... One perceives this reality and the reality that we are in Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans eight, one in Jesus Christ, first John five twenty. in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, there is Uden Katakrima, Uden Katakrima, when a Pound the gavel here on you. I've rendered a judgment on you. Uden katakrima. No condemnation. So to read Holman Christian standard Bible with some inserted brackets in Romans 5.16, one of the peaks. And the gift is not like the one man's sin. It means it's all out of proportion with it. Because from one sin came the judgment, krima, that's half of katakrima. From one sin came the judgment resulting in katakrima, condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift. In other words, all kinds of trespasses, multiple millions, uncountable billions. From Adam to Christ. And then all the sins afterward. Through many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification since by the one man's trespass death in Romans five seventeen, 
that is the catacrima or the condemnation of death, reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness, the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then as through one trespass, there is condemnation, catacrima, I'm giving you the only other two uses of this in the Bible. So then, as through one trespass, there is, condemna- there is condemnation, katakrima, for everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification, dikaiosin zoes, for everyone. All the human race, without one single exception. One man's sin resulted in condemnation. And condemnation in death. Uniformly. And universally. One man's righteous act resulted in justification. And justification in life. There's condemnation, death, justification, life, life giving justification. Uniformly and universally in Adam, I'll die uniformly. And universally, in Christ, all will be made alive. That's the same all that were once in Adam. Condemnation and death are one thing. Way over there. Justification and life are another thing. They are one thing. Justification, life, one thing. Condemnation, death, another thing. The law did not bring about a change. And this is where Paul hits his opposing missionary. There's an opposing missionary with an opposing gospel. Paul's missionary opponent. Good chunk of the thorn in Paul's flesh. Brought a gospel rooted in the law. The law did not bring and cannot bring a change in the Adamic ontology of the people that it addresses. The law is weak because of the flesh. Now, this is why I introduced apocalypticism, what apocalyptic means. When Paul, there's about five meanings of the word flesh. So you see the word flesh, sarks. But you see it in different five different meanings. Under the apocalyptic understanding, flesh with a capital F, flesh, is a cosmic power it's a supra human power it's a supra human enslaving power so what the law couldn't do why couldn't the law do it why couldn't the law justify why couldn't the law make people righteous because it was weakened or rendered totally or to combat totally strengthless by the flesh not by human beings' lower nature, but by a suprahuman actor in the apocalyptic struggle, in the eschatological war, the flesh. Almost equal to sin with a capital S. That's one of the powers. You see, we're beginning to see what the catastrophic effect of God's revelation is on. It's on the flesh, it's on sin, it's on death. It's on principalities and powers that are superhuman. So then, 
societies, countries, nations have uptrends and downtrends really dependent upon the people's response to the gospel within it. Not because of God judging, per se. Condemnation and death are in essence one thing because in one place, Romans 5.16, the one man's sin brought condemnation and in another place, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So death is brought about by the condemnation and the wages of sin is death. The wages is the condemnation that results in sin. You put Romans 5.16 together with 6.23 and you have that. Sin leads to condemnation. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to condemnation that is death, in other words. In Adam, then, all die because in Adam all sin, Romans 5.12. In Christ, all will be made alive because he who knew no sin, he who knew no sin, was made to be sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Justification, therefore, is not a legal fiction where you have this righteousness forensically imputed to you by the court of God, but you're still a jerk. You're still in your Adamic ontology. You're still doing nothing but sinning and rebounding, sinning and rebounding, sinning. Your, your, your life is on a trampoline. This isn't the gospel. This isn't what justification is. Justification is far more than a declaring right legally. It's a making right, really. It's a transformation. It's a liberation. It's a vindication of Jesus Christ in you and in me. It's Christ living in us. It's we crucified with him because no one living can be justified in God's eyes. So unlike the law, which was ordered by angels, listen to that now, the law was ordered by angels, Galatians 3.19. And it came through the hand of a mediator, Moses, Galatians 3.19. That implies that a lot of things were done to the law by the angels that ordered it, and that those angels may have a relationship to those that are called Elohim or gods with a small g in Psalm 82, 6, whom God judged. And then he gave to the Pharisees that title. Does not the law say you are gods? You are the Elohim. You are agreeing with the Elohim who have perverted and distorted the law into a system by which people are justified. We all know. If you've believed in Christ, here's a test for you. If you've believed in Christ, then you know, you've perceived that he's the end of the law for righteousness, that he's the end of that, trying to strive for rectitude or God-approved livingness by the law. Unlike the law ordered by angels in the hand of a mediator in Galatians 3.19, the spirit and the law and the spirit are contrasted in 2 Corinthians 3.6 through 9 which Brian alluded to phenomenally in his last message. Unlike the law ordered by angels in the hand of a mediator, the spirit immediately brings about the mortification of the Adamic ontology, the old man, palaios anthropos. And he brings about a transformation of the recipient of the gospel. 
Justification is rectification by making a person alive in Christ, by raising a person who was crucified with Christ into the newness of life in resurrection. There is no condemnation. Uden katakrima, to them who are in Christ Jesus, because they're not the recipients of a ministry of condemnation and death, but of justification and life. Now let's look at Romans 8.2. My translation expanded, 8.2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, that's a different law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me, liberated me. He continues the first person singular in Romans 7 because he's giving the history of someone trying to get into God-approved livingness by following obedience to the commandments of the law. And he ends up screaming, oh, wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Romans 8. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There's the second divine mission has liberated me from the law of sin. Notice sin, capital S and death, capital D, literally the sin and the death, which are identified here by Paul, not by apocalyptic theologians. People who call themselves apocalyptic theologians have just discovered what Paul knew and what he was teaching that the flesh and sin and death all need to be capitalized because they're personifications of enslaving powers. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is catastrophic to those powers, not to those who are the human beings oppressed by those powers or even the human beings that become oppressors under those powers. Oppressors are unrighteous. They need righteousness. The oppressed are oppressed by injustice. They need justice. God gives justice to those who need justice and righteousness to those that need righteousness. Perpetrators need righteousness. The perpetrated, those who are the victims, need justice. God's love in Christ Jesus gives justice to those that have been acted against unjustly, and he gives righteousness to those who have acted unjustly. God's plan envelops all of his creation. But the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is devastating, obliterating, annihilating on the suprahuman powers. Notice it in verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, that is, to give life or to justify or to bring anyone into a God-approved livingness, what the law was powerless to do, why? Why was it powerless to do it? Because it was rendered impotent. That means without any strength whatsoever by the flesh. Capitalize F there. Flesh here is a cosmic adverse power of sin let's just call it a suprahuman power of sin which has both abducted the law and 
became operative in human beings' very own bodies. What the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, God did. That's the whole point of this thing. God did. By sending his own son. God did by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he looked just like everyone else in the world. Sin controlled and sin complicit. But he was God in the flesh. And for sin sent his only begotten son, his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, Paul uses that word sin in many ways here also. For is like peri, is like huper. It means on behalf of or with reference to sin, meaning with reference to sin's removal. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh with a view to sin's removal or the removal of sin. He condemned sin. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus because the sin that led to condemnation was condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ, in his incarnate flesh on the cross of Calvary. God condemned the sin that leads to condemnation and death. In his resurrection, he ended death. In his crucifixion, he put away sin. So, notice how this goes right into our spiritual lives, as we call them. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, with a view to its removal, he condemned sin, not us, not human beings, in the flesh. In order that the rectitude, rectitude here or righteousness is G-A-L, God-approved livingness. In order that God-approved livingness that was required by the law would be fulfilled in us. That word fulfilled, fulfilled in us means that love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, he's saying everything the law required amounts to this. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And God did all that in Christ in order to bring us into the God-approved livingness because the righteousness that the law requires is our love for God and for one another. But that's only produced in us by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. Because of the crucified and risen Christ. So in order that the rectitude required by the law would be fulfilled in us. That is in those who comport themselves in the flesh. Now we have flesh with a small f meaning in our bodies. In these human bodies that are still weak and still prone and vulnerable to all kinds of oppression. We live these lives in the flesh. But we live by the spirit in the flesh. Those who comport themselves in the flesh in a manner not determined by the flesh. We walk around in the flesh, this human body, not determined by or directed by the flesh with a capital F. See how Paul uses, he plays with this word a lot. Paul is maddening because he never did a systematic theology. In fact, he's never systematic. 
And he understands that the gospel can be preached in a myriad of ways. And he says, it doesn't matter who preached it, whether it was me or Peter or Apollos or anyone else, as long as you had faith evoked by the message in 1 Corinthians 15. So here's where God-approved livingness comes in and where we'll take up on Wednesday. Required by the law would be fulfilled in us those who comport ourselves. Walk means to comport ourselves in the flesh in a manner not determined by the flesh, but by the spirit. That's the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who resides in our members now, right in our bodily members. In verse 5, for those who are determined by, directed by, controlled by anything you want to say, oppressed by the flesh, capital F there, that means the flesh and not the spirit, think and intend with the flesh. They can't help it. We can't, without the Holy Spirit, we can't help thinking and intending with this suprahuman power called the flesh, which makes people always out for themselves, always self-absorbed, always self-deceived, always having an angle, always being users of others, always being biased, always being prejudiced, always being proud, always being envious, always being jealous, always being adulterous, always being all that stuff. And then being worse than it all, judging those who do those things as if they don't do them and they do them all. For those who are determined by the capital F, flesh, and that means and not the spirit, think and intend with the flesh. But those who are determined or controlled or influenced profoundly by the spirit, think and in turn and intend. They think and intend. Mind here is a mindset. doesn't just think, it intends. It's an inclination. Those who are determined or directed by the spirit think and intend with the spirit for the let's let's use the word mindset. It's a proper translation for the mindset. That's a fixed mental and intentional inclination. See what I'm doing? I'm taking this glorious, big, giant, universal, apocalyptic gospel and bringing it right down into the thoughts and intents of our little old human hearts in this life. And how profoundly they are impacted. Those who are determined by the flesh and not the spirit think and intend with the flesh. But those who are determined by the spirit think and intend with the spirit. Look at verse 6. But the mindset, for the mindset, the fixed mental and intentional inclination of the flesh. Determined by the flesh, capital F here. A suprahuman adverse power in this battle. Leads to what? Death. Leads to death. Which here is simply the absence of a meaningful life in Christ. The absence of a higher integration of human livingness in Christ. It leads to death. It's the same thing to which sin, with a capital S, leads. And the same thing to which the letter of the law under sin's control leads. To death. That's another time, though. So let's look at verse 6. The mindset or the fixed inclination. The fixed inclination. The mind is fixed there. It's directed there. It doesn't change unless the spirit intervenes. The mindset of the flesh leads to death, but the fixed inclination of the spirit leads to life and 
peace. That's an experience of livingness in Messiah Jesus. Participation with his faithfulness. A faith that works by love. A life that has meaning and purpose and definition. A warfare that's fought in which the combatants receive rewards that boggle the imagination and make the Congressional Medal of Honor look like the tenderfoot badge of a Cub Scout by comparison. By comparison. I'm not dishonoring or disloyal to any of those things either. But we're talking about a real warfare here. And we're talking about people who are deserters in it too. And that's where Galatians comes in. I marvel, Paul says, as the commanding officer, how soon you have deserted the one who called you unto another gospel that doesn't even have the right to be called good news. Called away from him who called you into existence as a new creation by some meritorious system. By traditions of men that nullify the word of God. Deserters. So there's some bite to this. You leave universal salvation alone and it wanders around like a flower child in Haight-Ashbury district in the 1960s. Singing, come to San Francisco with flowers in your hair. But apocalyptic theology can't be left without it, but you marry them together and you know what? Apocalyptic theology makes an honest woman out of universal salvation. Using the old marital metaphor. Here it is, though. Not good for one to be alone. That's why I don't go, oh, there's universal salvation. Okay, Rick, jump into that camp. No way, no way, no way. It's not good for that doctrine to wander around alone without apocalyptic theology that gives it some teeth and explains why this world is an agona. And why things aren't the way you'd like them to be and never will be as long as you're on this planet. But the word of God and people who identify with the cross of Christ and his resurrection can actually create a movement in history that kind of moves toward that final movement of God in which all things will be transformed and brought into Christ Jesus and made glorious. So. In closing verses, let's look at these last final verses. For you see, this is a fact of apocalyptic life, friends. Verse 7, the fixed mental attitude or the fixed mental and intentional inclination of the flesh is, not it's like, it is. By definition, it is hostility against God. That's what it is. And you can see all kinds of forms of it. There's over lecherous kind of evil forms of it. But then there's the inane and silly form of it that denies God altogether in its inanity, in its, in its just nicety. There's evil in just nicety. There's evil in evil overtly. But the flesh is hostility against God. I saw this at the University of Vermont. There was, as I mentioned before, I don't mention their names, but there were two girls that were wandering around and they were like the, oh, everything's, you know, and they even talk like that. Everything is peachy keen and you're peachy keen and I'm okay and you're okay. And then one time I told them the gospel and they turned into the most vicious witches that you have ever seen in your life. They turned 
Because their little inane niceness was just as damn evil as the people shooting heroin down the hallway. And there were plenty of them, too. It's godlessness is what it's all about. And so you see the fixed mental attitude and intentional inclination of the flesh is hostility against God by definition. It's the definition of hostility against God. And the most flesh-controlled people were the most religious people on the earth who said, crucify him, the true God. It does not submit to God's law, it says. God's law is what? You will love one another. I'm going to close with this now. The flesh does not submit to God's law. What's God's law? Jesus said it. I'm giving you a new law. Here's my law. I'm God. I'm giving you a new law that you love one another as I have loved you. The flesh cannot submit to that law. And so it remains in its corners with its biases and its pride and its prejudices and its ressentiment. And that's what's all the problem in Rome. They're living under the dictates of the flesh because this opposing missionary has a nice little gospel. But he says, yes, Jesus died for your sins. But though he died for your sins, although he died for your sins, you've got to comply with the law in all of its points. What does that do? It keeps people under under the sin of the sin-controlled flesh, and they're unable to love So they stay in their corners to come out only to fight. Neither is it indeed able to do so. It is not able to do so. Those who are inclined and fixed under the flesh aren't even able to do so. So the flesh is by definition hostility or enmity against God. It's a suprahuman power, which human flesh... Small f, which is the total resources of unaided humanity, is incapable of defeating the flesh with a capital F. Now, that's an F word. The inward will of a human being may well want to overcome the flesh with a capital F. But you know what Jesus said? The spirit is willing. That means man's intent and will and desire really wants to overcome that impulsive desire of the flesh. But the flesh, small f, is weak. It's weak. Can't do it. Our flesh, with a small f, is humanity without supernatural help, is weak against capital F-L-E-S-H, And it cannot do other than follow its dictates. The flesh with a capital F is suprahuman. The flesh with a small f is all too human. The flesh, capital F, is enmity against God. And the flesh, small f, is without strength. Without the Holy Spirit's intervention and mission, we're done. Here then, the spirit with a capital S... I'll close with that. So you can wear, go out and buy Superman shirts, but have the S mean spirit. 
Capital S becomes the most important ingredient in God-approved livingness, the relationship of the spirit to the flesh, capital S with capital F, like the relationship between Paul and his missionary opponent is entirely contradictory. In Galatians, the flesh and the spirit are set plainly in a theater of war. The flesh wars against the spirit. The spirit wars against the flesh. Cosmic forces are pitted against God and human beings are pawns. We're pawns until we're imbued with the spirit of Jesus Christ, at which time we become knights, combatants in the chess game, as it were, and ultimately kings and queens. Closing number two, because Romans 8 comes right off Romans 7, the idea continues that the law itself is weak through the flesh. God's law, though, is summed up in the commandment to love one another. When he's talking about just plain God's law, not the law under the control of sin, but God's law, upon these two commandments, all the law and the prophets hang. These are, this is the peg upon which you hang both vessels, the law and the prophets. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So what does God do? He sends the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God out in our hearts, which is our love for God, total love for God, and God's love for others in Romans 5.5. So we walk in the Spirit and are determined and controlled by the Spirit. We're actually fulfilling what God's law requires, which is love. The flesh is, by definition, hostility against this command, then. It's against the command to love. There is danger in following a meritorious gospel. But what Paul does here is put a dagger to the heart of the false teacher's gospel because his teaching supports a bias of devotees or disciples under the control of the flesh and incapable of love because he has them following the sin hijacked law ordered by angels through the hand of a human mediator. But God is one. Consequently, if the opposing gospel of the missionary opponent of Paul succeeds in Rome, then love will be thwarted by biases. Apply that to our time. But if Paul's gospel, which is really the gospel of God about his son in Romans 1, 1 to 4, prevails in Rome, then love will conquer all the biases there. Look at our country. Look at our nation. Riddled with biases. Riddled with prejudices. Fighting ideological, bitter, bitter battles based on flesh against flesh, flesh against flesh, flesh against flesh. The gospel I'm preaching to you now, which is a marriage of apocalyptic and universal salvation, has the power to cause faith to be gifted to people and for people to participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, a faith that works by love, demolishes biases, demolishes prejudices, 
uproots Rasantama, destroys it from the root beneath, and therefore causes the fruit of it from above to dry up and die. We are talking here about the nation's destiny. We're talking about civilization's destiny. But we're talking most of all, most of all about how do you view Jesus Christ and him crucified? Are you going to heaven because you do good works, although he was crucified? Or are you going to heaven and living the spiritual life and are what you are because altogether of Jesus Christ and him crucified? We thank you, Father.